Amen. You can be seated, and we'll dismiss the, our school-age kiddos to the back. Looks like Mr. Brad, Miss Sarah's back there. And as they're doing that, if you will uh, take out uh, your Bibles, if you brought them, or some kind of device, and follow along, we'll be in Luke chapter 11. And that is a, a passage we've uh, made mention of a couple times in our study on prayer. Um, Luke 11 is where Jesus, uh, where Luke records the Lord's Prayer of Jesus and a parable that Jesus tells. Also, Luke 18 is another place you could look at. Um, we're going to look at uh, just a couple more elements of prayer, and then we'll wrap up this series next week. It'll be the fourth part of our prayer series. Um, really focusing in in the book of Acts, but also going back to Luke. As you know, Luke and Acts were kind of a two-part, uh, two-volume set um, written, by, written by Luke. And uh, we've just been exploring prayer. In the book of Acts, prayer is just such a predominant thing. And we see the church praying, even as in the passage we read earlier in uh, Acts 4, um, as they're being persecuted, they turn to prayer. Now, I also recommended to you a book last week called A Praying Life. Um, And if there is nothing other that you do this week to grow your prayer life and understanding it and practicing it, I encourage you to get that book. As I've reread it, it is just an unbelievable read. Um, It's very easy to read. Uh, It's long, a little short. I think it's 39, like three-page chapters, four-page chapters. Um... Just a phenomenal book. And one of the things he says in there, Paul Miller, the author of A Praying Life, um, he has a special needs child. And through some of that and the other difficulty that he walks through, he really just kind of learns how to pray. Um, Not that he stumbled upon any secret, uh, but one of the things he says in there, the reason that the church in America doesn't pray is because underlying all of it, whether we be honest about it or not, that we're convinced that with enough time, talent, and money, then we can solve all of our problems. If we just have enough time, talent, and money, we can solve our problems. Why do we need to pray? And that is such um, an indictment on the church in the West. But even more than that, maybe it would open up our eyes to what, what we've agreed to or believed and what God really wants us to know about prayer As just a uh, quick idea of review in the book of Acts, Luke continually points out that prayer was the foundation of the church's ministry and the secret behind everything that God was doing in uh, the early church. Even uh, starting in Jerusalem, uh, we see it expanding through the church at Antioch. And it keeps going. By the time Paul gets to Rome, we see that there uh, there are... People in Caesar's own household who are believers in Jesus. Got to fix this mic here. Um, so in, in Acts 1, they start out praying. In Acts 2, they're devoted in prayer. In Acts 4, what we read, they're praying uh, as persecution abounds. In Acts 6, it says the apostles devoted themselves to prayer and ministry of the word. And I love, too, that both were considered ministries of the church. It wasn't that preaching was the real ministry and prayer was only done in preparation for it. Prayer was the ministry of the church. When they got together, they prayed. In Acts 9, Peter's praying for the six. In Acts 12, uh, the church is praying for Peter to be released. We looked at that a couple weeks ago. In Acts 13, this was last week, um, they're praying God raises up missionaries. In Acts 14, 
Uh, They're appointing elders through prayer in Acts 16. Paul and Silas are in prison praying. Uh, The earthquake happens. Luke ends up the book of Acts by describing Paul's ministry as preaching, healing, and praying. You can literally find the church in prayer in every single chapter of the book of Acts. It was so fundamental to what they did. When they got together, they prayed. And here's my concern. What was so fundamental for the early church has become supplemental in our church. We talked about that some last week. We look at prayer as something we do on the way to ministry. They looked at it as the ministry. What we find in Acts is that it's more important to talk to God about people than people about God. So why do we find it so difficult to pray? Most of us would point to a problem with our self-discipline. Wouldn't we? We leave here maybe feeling, <clears throat> excuse me, a little worse about ourselves, saying, man, I just need to be more disciplined to pray. We don't pray enough for the same reason we don't work out or eat enough kale. It's a lack of self-discipline. And so you're thinking maybe, in the, the, like, this is my attempt to convince you to be more disciplined, and that's not a terrible idea, but I think there's a much different and deeper reason why most of us aren't praying And it's painfully honest, but it's the truth. For many of us, we're just not sure how much good prayer actually does. Now, nobody wants to admit this in the church, but see, sometimes you pray and things happen, and sometimes you pray and things don't happen. And sometimes you don't pray, and the thing you forgot to pray about happens anyway. And this is why many of us struggle praying. Now, I love that Luke handles this in in Luke chapter 11. If you've got it uh, turned there, Luke uh, records the prayer of Jesus. It says in verse 1, this is not on the screen, Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he had finished, one of the disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. Now, I don't have time to go through all the different times that even Luke mentions this again and again and again, that we see Jesus disciplining himself to pray, so much so that the disciples saying, man, there must be some kind of power in this. They go to, to Jesus and say, teach us to pray. And so he teaches them to pray. And then immediately in verse 5, he goes into this uh, little parable about praying. Let's read it. It says, uh, and he said to them, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, do not bother me. The door is now shut. My children are, uh, are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though, he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be open for you. For everyone who asks, receive, and the one who seeks, finds, and the one who knocks, it will be open. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit <clears throat> to those who ask him? Jesus knows that we would wrestle with unanswered prayer. And it's encouraging to me that right after he teaches them how to pray, he gives them this story that deals with our primary obstacle in praying, unanswered prayer. Like I said a minute ago, many of us, this is the reason we quit praying. Maybe the reason we gave up on church and God altogether. 
We prayed a prayer, and we, saw, we thought surely any loving God would step in and answer this prayer. And things didn't happen like we wanted them to. And we can't really make sense of that. Clearly, Jesus was aware of this frustration. He recognized it as an obstacle to praying effectively. And so he addresses it. And if that's you in that condition, I think that's part of the good news. The good news that means it's, there's nothing necessarily wrong with you. And so you can just take a minute and let that settle in. And I think the, the things that are included in this parable might shed some light and some truth on helping us cultivate a heart for God that would pray more. A few details in the parable that I want to, in the story that I want to point out. First, in a country without electricity, it says that the friend came to him at midnight. It literally is the middle of the night. They would go to bed as soon as basically the sun went down. This guy has been sleeping for at least four or five hours already. And then this guy comes and knocks on the door. Now, if you came and knocked on my door in the middle of the night and asked me for bread, I might punch you in the face, to be honest. I love, too, the loose translation that he uses uh, the word friend here because uh, you're not going to be my friend anymore if you come and ask for something like that. Notice also that the passage says that he's in bed with his children. These would be little one-room shacks where you had some cushions in the corner, and because of safety reasons and other things, you would normally pack all the kids in, and, uh, and then you would kind of all just kind of lounge there together. It wasn't separate bedrooms. Those of you who have little kids, you know how hard it is to get all the kids to go to sleep. I remember when, when, our, uh, when, two, when uh, Claire and Ellie were young and then Hudson uh, came along as a baby, man, to get all three asleep at a decent hour was just this unbelievable task. And once you put them to bed, I mean, we didn't even whisper. Ashley and I, when they would fall asleep in the car, would drive five and six hours, whatever we had to do, not saying a word so that our kids don't wake up. And that's kind of that's the hyperbole that's in this that's in this parable he comes up and says friend i need three loaves that's the third detail i want you to notice this man is making a request that doesn't involve any sort of emergency he's just had some friends come over and he wants to feed them and then the last thing i want you to notice quickly is that the request he puts forward is exorbitant in those days bread's uh, a loaf of bread would feed someone, they were huge, they would feed a family for a week, and one would have been sufficient, but he asked for three. And then in verse 8, we kind of get a little secret. This is what Jesus, this is the point he's trying to get to us. I tell you, though, he will not get up and give him anything because he is a friend, but because of his impudence. Maybe your translation says boldness or shamelessness. Because of his boldness, he will rise up and give him whatever he needs. And I really just have two points this morning, speaking about prayer. First is that we should pray with boldness. Pray with boldness. The friend gets his request not because the other guy loves him, not because he asks at a convenient time, not because he's a good friend, but because of his boldness and persistence in asking. Then Jesus says in verse 9, And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. 
This whole analogy of knocking reinforces this idea of persistent asking, right? When you knock, you don't just knock once and then run away from the door. Jesus says, knock, and if no one comes to the door, keep knocking. Be like the little kids in my neighborhood when I'm trying to take a nap on Sunday afternoon, and they want to know if my kids want to play. And they come and knock, and I was like, well, surely they'll go away. But they will not go away. They know that I'm in there. They can peek through the window, and they just knock until I answer. And that's what Jesus is saying, that we shouldn't be like annoying little kids, but that we should feel free and bold to go before him and knock and knock and keep knocking and keep asking. When you look at the early church, you see that this boldness in their praying, after all, this is how Scripture taught them to pray. What teaches us to pray in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 12, it says, In whom, speaking of Christ, that we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. In Hebrews 4 verse 16, it says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Jesus is not comparing God to a slumbering friend. He's contrasting God with one. The friend we approach is not asleep. No, he's so attentive to us that he knows how many hairs are on our heads. He knows when one sparrow falls from the sky. One who didn't just give us loaves of bread that he had stored up, but he gave us the bread of his very own life. And when we understand this church, then we begin to pray bold prayers. You know who naturally approaches me the most boldly? It's my kids. Maybe you've been in that situation at 2 a.m. and you feel like someone's staring at you and you open up to see two little googly eyes through the dark. Ellie used to come in the room with a blanket over her head. She had a blanket she slept with. I'm telling you, scared me, uh, scared me to death more times than I care. Wake up and there's this blanket over my kid's head staring at me. This is how we approach God and the, the boldness that your kids have. Just the other day, Hudson came in the room very late. I assume they were all asleep for a couple hours and said, Dad, I want a Lunchable. So I did what any good dad would tell him to do. Go tell your mom that's what you want. Mom sent him back to me. And so I gave him a Lunchable that happened to be expired and made his stomach sick. But that's what we do, right? Our kids approach us with boldness. Who else could get away with something like that? Now, I'm a pastor, and I get calls at all sorts of hours of the night. But if you call me at 2 o'clock in the morning, please have something really important to say. Not, hey, I'd like a loaf of bread. But when it's one of your kids, right, you give it to them. You you give it to them because you love them, and they approach with boldness. My kids approach me with this undaunted confidence in my goodness towards them. And that's how God wants us to approach him. We're like children who are welcome right in, the, in their dad's bedroom at whatever hour of the night with whatever need we may have. And he presses the point a little further in the story. Look in verse 13. Jesus says, if you who are evil love to give good gifts to your children. Evil is a big word, isn't it? Jesus is talking to his disciples. Why is he using that word evil? Well, because most of us are at our most loving when we're dealing with our kids. Even if we're not good people normally, we normally try to be good to our kids. Yet compared to God's love for his children, even the best parent on the best day 
would be classified as evil compared to the love that God has for his kids. Think of how tenderly you love your kids, yet compared to God's love for his children, even that love for your kids is evil compared to his love for us. What would your prayers for others look like if you really believed that God had that kind of love for you and that kind of love for others? You would pray boldly. God only gives some things in response to bold, ongoing, patient, persistent prayer. Or maybe you could say it this way. God delights to share his power with those who are bold enough to bother him. Church, are you asking big things of God? Are you boldly entering the throne room asking big things? What are you trusting him for today? What, what big things are you asking him for? We should pray with boldness. My second point is that we should pray with faith in God. Pray with faith in God. This is one of the The very definition of faith comes from Hebrews 11. It's hoping in what you cannot see. You know that passage, right? Me and Mr. Thomas talked about it a little this morning. It's trusting that God is alive and that he loves us and he's working even though we can't always see it. And this is the hardest part of prayer, especially for us in the West. Here's one of the quotes. I don't think I have the whole thing on the the screen, but here's maybe the first part from Paul Miller in A Praying Life. American culture is probably the hardest place in the world to learn to pray. First, we're so busy that when we slow down to pray, we find it uncomfortable. We prize accomplishments, production, but prayer is nothing but talking to God, and it feels useless as if we're wasting time. Every bone in our body screams, just get to work. How many of us have been guilty of that? He goes on to say, when we aren't working, we're used to being entertained. Television, internet, video games, cell phones make free time as busy as work. And when we do slow down, we slip into some kind of stupor, exhausted by the pace of life, and we veg out in front of a screen or with headphones. If we try to be quiet, we are assaulted by what C.S. Lewis calls the kingdom of noise, and everywhere we go, we hear background noise. Even even if the noise isn't provided for us, we bring it on our own phones. I watched a family at a restaurant just this week sit down. Ashton and I had a little date night, and right behind us was a family. And everyone but the dad, the mom, the two kids, had headphones in the entire dinner. And I was just almost appalled at that, that, you know, even around dinner, at least that's the one time that we can put our devices away. But this is that C.S. Lewis is calling this kingdom of noise that won't let us be still even for a moment. He goes on to say, even our church service can have that same restless energy. There is little space to be still before God. We want our money's worth. So something should always be happening. We're uncomfortable with silence. One of the most subtle hindrances to prayer, Miller says, is probably the most pervasive in the broader culture and in our churches. We prize intellect and competency and wealth. 
Because we can do life without God. Praying seems nice but unnecessary. Money can do what does. Money can do what prayer does, and it's quicker and less time-consuming. Our trust in ourselves and in our talents makes us structurally independent of God, and as a result, exhortations to pray don't stick. Man, what an indictment on us as a church. Maybe some of those things resonated with your heart. Maybe the callousness to praying, maybe the closing your eyes for a minute and feeling like I have all these things I need to be doing. Maybe this, he talks about this, uh, this thing even in our church services. Listen, when the early church came together, many times there was no address, there was no sermon preached, there was no song sang. They just got together and they just prayed. And if you walked in this morning and I stood before you and said, hey, listen, I'm glad you came to, ga- to gathering today. What we're going to do today is we're just going to pray. You would think, well, the pastor just hadn't had any time to study this week, right? That's the old, uh, you know, get you out of a tight fix. But maybe the most important thing we could be doing today, instead of you listening to me talk and preach this sermon or sing, maybe the most powerful thing we could do is getting on our knees before God as a faith family and just crying out to him and ask him to do some of the things that, that our money and, and, and our talent cannot accomplish Don't we see this in the world? We have a tragedy like we've had this week and everybody starts posturing with, well, well, we should be doing this better and the politicians should do this and this. Don't they understand that evil is hidden in, in, in the heart of men? And even the best politicians and the best money and the best education and the best training is not gonna change that. Only God can, can change a person's heart. And that's what we so desperately need. And I'm not saying that, we, that those other things are not important. But what we've, what we've done as a country is we've made them of, of primal significance. And God is saying, listen, you're just posturing in different ways. What you need is a humble heart coming to me in prayer. Even Jesus walked into the church of the day. Remember this scene that we don't like to think about of Jesus? He walks in, and I think it's in John's account. He just stands over there in the corner and makes a whip just fuming with this like righteous indignation. It wasn't a, hey, I saw, the, I saw the things going on and I just had an immediate reaction to turn the, the tables over. No, he just sits over there and stews for a minute and then goes Indiana Jones on like the temple. And what does he say after all of that? That my house should be called a house of prayer. Yet, if we can be honest as a church, not just the church in the West, as we can be honest as Covenant Church, we give more time to anything else but prayer. More time to strategy, more time to fellowship, more time to preaching, more time to singing. We give, we give more time to everything else. Like prayer is like the, the, the last thing that we kind of add on or that we do during transitions. And Jesus is saying, listen, church, you don't get it. Some things only come by praying, and we pray with boldness, and we pray with faith. At its most basic level, faith is just trusting God. Now, sometimes praying by faith brings about supernatural provision in the midst of extreme difficulty. And you've seen this. We see this in Scripture Sometimes praying by faith brings about supernatural provision in the midst of extreme difficulty. 
Maybe you can think of a time that you prayed and you were in a tight spot and God did something supernatural to make it work. I remember telling you the story, I know I've shared it before, that I was at some kind of kids event uh, when I was in elementary school and the whole family was there. We were talking about what we're going to eat afterwards and we're trying to get dad to, to take us to the sizzler, right? That's what we wanted. My dad just looked at us as little kids and said, we just don't have the money. And I remember as like a 10 or 11 year old starting praying, all right, God, we need the money because it's time to go to the sizzler. No kidding. Like cash started like flowing down in the stream next to us. I don't remember how much it was. It was at least $20 bill, like literally just like floating for me to pick it up. And I went and picked it up thinking like God had answered my prayer and now I get to go to the sizzler. It's funny, just the faith that a kid has to pray and ask God for things that maybe we've become so jaded and cynical that we don't pray about anymore. Praying by faith sometimes brings about supernatural provision in the midst of extreme difficulty. As you read through Hebrews 11, this chapter on faith, you see this in verse 11. It says, by faith Sarah herself received power to conceive, and when she was Past the age since she considered him faithful who had promised. Sarah prayed with faith in God. And supernaturally, God sent provision in her extreme difficulty. By faith, Sarah, it says, she believed God's promise. She receives God's promise. And then something supernaturally invaded her natural world and a miracle happens. Sometimes praying by faith brings about these things. Supernatural provision. I've been in places with other people praying for people to be healed and they're healed. And you're almost a little astonished that God did that and it's supernatural. We saw this a few weeks ago in Acts 12. We see it again in a few chapters in Acts 16. I don't think I have this up there but It says about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the prisoners were listening to them and suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundation of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were open and everyone's bonds were unfastened. This is praying by faith, claiming God's promises and seeing supernatural provision in the midst of extreme difficulty. Their praying by faith activated the power of God and special provision was unleashed from heaven into their situation. Again, in Hebrews 11, there's this long list of people who prayed by faith, trusting in God, and supernatural provision came from heaven and immediately remedied the situation. Look in verse 32 of Hebrews chapter 11. Again, I'm not sure if this is on the screen. Yes, it is. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and David and Samuel and all the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms. Maybe you would underline that, through faith. Who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. I mean, on and on and on. These people, it says there that through faith that they obtained promises. You can go look at their stories and these really tough situations. They reached out to God and they prayed in faith and some incredible things happened. And sometimes 
God wants to do these very things in our lives, in your life, and we pray for them. We come boldly before the throne of God and we cry out to God and ask him to do that. Sometimes the activation of God's power in our lives by faith brings about supernatural provision, literally changes our situation. But it would be heresy to end the sermon there. It would be wrong to end the sermon there because sometimes God moves in that way and sometimes he doesn't. Sometimes the activation of God's power in our lives by faith brings about not supernatural change but supernatural perseverance. Still an amazing work of God in our lives. Maybe this is part of your story. Maybe that you've walked through some extreme difficulty and you're still here. Like you're praying for God to remedy the situation and he hasn't remedied the situation, but he's working on changing you. Sometimes God unleashes his power in your life, not by changing the circumstances, but by changing you, giving you supernatural perseverance. In Hebrews 11, that list goes on. Verse 35, some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves on the earth. Sometimes God doesn't remedy the situation. Sometimes God, in his supernatural power, grants you perseverance to walk through what many would consider the most difficult situations on earth. That's what it says, the author of Hebrews, about these people in verse 39. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Sometimes these people here, it's not a lack of faith that's causing the suffering. They're actually suffering because of their faith. Holding fast to their faith actually is what led to their difficulty. And one of the things about praying with, with faith is having to trust the heart of God. That he is bringing the very best for us, even if that means walking through dark and deep valleys. I love how it says that they experienced God's presence and they believed his promise. In the parable in Luke 11, Jesus acknowledged that there are indeed times that we don't receive the answers that we think we should have. And that's not because God doesn't love us or because he's not listening to us, but because he has a greater plan. Again, Jesus talks about this in verse 11. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will give a, will instead of a fish, give a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? Scorpion. You know this as parents. If your kid asks for a chicken nugget, you're not going to give him a poisonous spider. No, you give good gifts to your kids. And the same with God. So if you reverse that, if your child asks for a scorpion, we talked about this a little last week, will you give them the scorpion? No. You see, sometimes what looks like bread is actually a scorpion. And what, to us, what looks like a scorpion is actually bread. 
We have to trust the heart of God that no matter what we're walking through, that his heart for us is good, and he promises that he's going to work out everything together for good for those that love him. Think of the cross. If there were ever anything that looked like a scorpion, it was the cross. Wasn't it? Didn't all the disciples try to argue with him before he even went there? Didn't they try to fight off the soldiers that came to arrest him? Didn't they leave none of them at the cross itself, leaving town dejected? Peter goes back to his old profession of, profession of fish, fishing. If anything looked like a scorpion, it was actually the cross. But that was one of the greatest moments of all history, right? That was the moment of our salvation. And here's something I've held on to for years, something Tim Keller says. Sometimes God answers our prayers by giving us what we would have asked if we knew what he knew. And I know that doesn't answer all of your questions nor mine, but what I do know is that you have a heavenly father that you can trust. In Psalms 84, 11, he says, no good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. No good thing. And he proved that by how he died for us on the cross And that shows you and that shows me that whatever is happening in our life, it's not because that he's lost love for you or that he's somehow forgotten you, that he's fallen asleep at the wheel. The cross is his eternal pledge that he's he's always working for your good. Sometimes God delays because it's something in, in us God wants to change. Sometimes he delays because he's trying to give us the greater gift. Many of you have probably heard of a lady named Joni Erickson Tata who was paralyzed from the neck down from a diving accident when she was a teenager. I was reading a, a blog that she wrote on the 50th anniversary of that diving accident. For 50 years, she's been confined to a wheelchair not able to use her arms and legs. And this is what she says. What a difference time makes, as well as prayer and heaven-minded friends and a deep study of God's word. All combined, I began to see that there are more important things in life than walking and having use of your hands. It sounds incredible, she says, but I really would rather be in this wheelchair knowing Jesus as I do than be on my feet without him. But whenever I try to explain it, I hardly know where to begin. That may be what God is doing in you now. I heard one person say that pain is God's megaphone. Sometimes God allows us to walk through really difficult times so that we can hear his voice. But see, at the end of the day, The key word that we say in our prayer, the word that Jesus taught us to open every prayer with, it's a word that we're going to dive into next week as we wrap this up, is Father. My kids ask me lots of things, and some things I give them and some things I don't, but I'm always working for their good, and even more so with God. Let me close with just one last thing. I think one of the problems that we run into all the time is we lack the distinction between hope and desire. These things are not the same, hope and desire. Hope is something that you're sure of, something that you can be certain of. We hope in God's promises. 
Hope is rooted in the promise of God. It's what Hebrews uh, 10 says, that we should, you know, because of our confidence in Jesus, we should hold unswervingly to the hope that we have. Desire is much different than hope. Desire is the things that we want in life. It's good things that we want and things we even pray for and we should pray for. But that's not what our hope is in. I can desire to be healed, but that's not my hope. I can desire to get a job, but that's not my hope. And God does not promise to fill every desire. He does promise that he will keep his promises. And those two are very different. If you get those two switched up and you pray for things you desire and then God doesn't give them to you, then all of a sudden you, you throw out the baby with the bathwater and you just assume. And this is something the enemy does. These compromises in our heart gets us to agree with the enemy that God is not for us and he's not good. But God never promised he would give you all of his desires. This is what theologians call the eschatological hope. That we want the promise of what is to come. We want heaven now. Don't we? We want the ease. We want the eternity with each other. As Ecclesiastes says, that God has set eternity in our hearts. But that's not how this life works. It's the cross now and the crown later. Or the cross now and glory later. Our problem is that we put, many of us, put all of our weight on what we desire, not what we hope in. Again, the enemy is so crafty in getting us to make these assumptions about who God is. Let me close by just assuring you that God hasn't given up, that Jesus is your advocate before the Father even now, and he knows you. He's praying even on your behalf as the Holy Spirit is praying things that we don't know we should even be praying So come boldly to God, ask big things of him, and pray with faith, trusting that God knows what's best and he is working even if we can't see it. How tragic would it be that God's people would miss out on God doing some supernatural things in our lives, in our churches, in our communities because we aren't believing him for it, because we're too afraid to approach the throne room, because we've become too cynical because of past desires that he hasn't given us, that we're too afraid to ask him for it. If God only did for you as an answer to prayer by faith, what would be happening in your life right now? What are you trusting him for? I want us to spend a few moments in prayer. We're going to take communion in just a minute. And this is this, just another great reminder of having a meal with our father. Him reminding us, pointing us to the cross. To remind us of the extent of his love for us. Before we do that, I just want you to talk to him. Maybe it's been a long time since you've really gone to him in prayer. Maybe you need to go to him and confess some of those things we mentioned earlier, the desire for busyness, the confidence in your own talent and treasure as a replacement for him supernaturally working. Maybe there's sin in your life. It's gotten you so distracted on the things that are most important.
I'm going to give you some time just to talk to God and confession and interceding on behalf of others, listening to the Holy Spirit as he guides and directs. And then when you're ready, why don't you come and participate in communion and then we're going to sing as a family to close out. Let me say a quick prayer over us. God, thank you for the gift of your word or for the privilege of prayer. Lord, I repent and confess of my knee-jerk reaction to worry or to work before I pray, to strategize and to scheme before I pray, to make judgment and pass judgment on others before I pray, to vote before I pray. Lord, would you renew a desire in my heart an affection, a burning desire and affection to come to you in prayer. May the kids that live in my house know that their dad believes in the power of prayer. May the people that visit this church know that we firmly believe in the power of prayer, not just because we say it, but because we put so much emphasis on it. Because we actually live a life, we live a praying life. That when we're discouraged, we pray. When we're thankful, we pray. When we're worried, we pray. When we're concerned, we pray. When we're grieved, that we would pray. When we're broken, that we would pray. Or would you do such a thing in our hearts? Thank you for the gift of your son, for the cross, for this practice of communion that reminds us of your love for us through your son Jesus on the cross. It's in Jesus' mighty name that we pray, amen. I'll be in the back if you'd like to pray with me. Communion servers will be here. You just come when you're ready.